for the past several decades, it seems like the majority of people have been turned off by church. Church is considered old. People want something new. They're tired of the old buildings, the old pews, the old hymns, old everything. And they associate church with a very old, stale environment, and they don't want to be a part of that, so they don't go to church. That doesn't mean they're not spiritual, they say. There's still seemingly plenty of people out there who are still seeking God. They, they want spirituality. They just don't want old-fashioned religion. And so knowing this, many churches over the past several decades have adapted in a desire to be sensitive to such seekers and attract them back to the church. These churches have changed church. Everything gets an update, a modern overhaul, from the pews to the hymns to the music to the whole style of the church. Now, that's not really the big problem. The big problem is when the church's message gets changed as well. Churches used to feature biblical preaching that didn't shy away from topics like sin and repentance and judgment. It's not that these churches were trying to make everyone just feel bad, but you have to be confronted with the bad news before you can really delight in the good news. However, these seekers didn't want to hear about sin and judgment. They didn't want to be made to feel bad at all. They didn't want to hear they have a sin problem. They've got enough problems in life. That's why they stopped going to church in the first place. And so many churches, as I'm sure you all well know, have accommodated once again, and they've dropped that preaching of the word. And now even the message of the church has been updated, and anything that's potentially offensive to any seeker has been removed so as to appeal to the unchurched. Otherwise, they won't come. We just have to get them in the door. But I hope you can see how misguided this is. Such churches are sacrificing the true message of the gospel, all because they have a wrong view of success. How is a church's success measured these days? Just by numbers, by attendance. Just get them in the door. And what makes you a Christian? Well, you go to a church. That's it. The bar of discipleship has been lowered to merely showing up and you're a disciple. But whenever you lower the standard of discipleship, you get sheep disciples or even sometimes false disciples. And Jesus, to the contrary, was never interested in cheap disciples or false disciples. And he never made church attendance a requirement for discipleship. Did you know that? He never said you have to attend church. So it makes you a Christian. Church attendance, that's something that comes after you've already been made a true disciple. And church attendance, that's something that true disciples are excited to do. Because they love their Lord, they love the church, they don't need to be convinced to go to church, they don't need some added incentive. And think about that. If you feel you need to be convinced to come to church, you need some incentive, something to spice up the deal, maybe like a potluck. But if the plain love of the Lord and His people is not enough to excitedly drive you to church, then maybe you are a cheap disciple or maybe even a false disciple. What do true disciples of the Lord look like? What did Jesus himself say? Where did he set the bar? Well, we've already covered it in Mark's gospel, Mark 8, 34, 35. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel, he is the one who will find it. So you want to be a true disciple, that means you don't live for you anymore. You, you live for the Lord. This was, this is Christ's standard of discipleship. And don't expect him to lower the bar just to get more people in the door. And he, he won't do it. Jesus is only interested in genuine followers. And God is the real seeker. And God is seeking true worshipers. And all that being said, well, what do we make of all those unchurched seekers out there? How should we treat them? Or better yet, how would Jesus treat them? I wonder what would Jesus think about these seekers that we call? People who are interested in Christianity, they want some spirituality, but something's holding them back. They don't want to really invest in, in church. What would Jesus say to such people? Well, guess what? Today we're going to find out. This morning we come to one of the most famous episodes in the Gospels where Jesus encounters a seeker. And we get to see how Jesus responds. 
So you can open your Bibles and turn them to Mark chapter 10, where we find an encounter between Jesus and a seeker who is more famously known as the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10. If you've never read this story before, the rich young ruler, he was already a pretty religious guy. He was devout, he was pure, he kept the commandments, he was very spiritual. But his heart was still restless because even after all he had done, he still felt disconnected from God. He still wasn't sure he, he was saved. He, he was seeking. He's seeking the Lord, he's seeking the way to inherit eternal life. He's even seeking in the right direction. He goes to the right person for this quest for salvation. He comes to Jesus, that's good. He believes Jesus can answer his questions. He can ensure that he gets in the door of heaven. And he's right. Jesus can answer his questions. He's going to the right person. However, as we'll see, he's not prepared for what Jesus tells him. And sadly, the story ends in tragedy. But this whole episode, it's so instructive for us to watch because we don't just watch, we we learn. We learn what true salvation requires. We learn what real salvation discipleship looks like and we learn that the bar is never lowered for anyone even seekers there's only one way into the kingdom of god there's only one path to true salvation and do you know what it is do you know the way and from the tragedy of the rich young ruler we're, we're going to find out as we go through this little passage verse by verse mark 10 17 through 22 is the passage and we're going to read as we go and so let's just begin by this. We dive into this, this text here. Number one, a startling introduction. You can follow along. I'll give you some points. Number one, a startling introduction. Look at, look at verse 17. It begins, it says, As he was setting out on a journey, Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. And you can stop there. At the moment, Jesus, he's been in Perea. It's that region east of the Jordan River, doing a little bit of ministry, but that time is up. He's about to resume his journey, his final journey to Jerusalem where he will die. So he gets up. He's about to get back on that journey, proceed toward Jerusalem. Only as he's leaving town, a man runs up to him and interrupts him. It's not just any man, though. He is a rich young ruler. You you may not know. You might wonder why I keep calling him that. Well, we, we don't know his name, but we do know, for one, he's rich. Tells us he owned a lot of property. Luke 18:18 18, 18 says he's a ruler, most likely referring to being that the head, the ruler of a local synagogue. And Matthew 19:20 says he's young, so we call him the rich young ruler, and it's got a ring to it. But he had quite the resume. Usually, young men were not accepted as synagogue leaders or rulers, so he obviously had some esteem, some respect in that community. Perhaps this was because of his wealth. He had struck it rich at a young age. Don't know how. But also, he was very accomplished in Judaism. He, had, he was well beyond his years when it comes to righteousness from the law. He was young, but he seemingly had it all. And still, though, even though this man lacks nothing, we find him running up to Jesus and kneeling down before him. And that, that's a startling introduction. Why? Because these are two things that respectable Jewish men never did. Jewish men didn't run, and they don't kneel down. In front of rabbis. To run meant hiking up your robe, is girding your loins that exposed your legs. They considered that very shameful, so they didn't run anywhere. And it was not custom for them to kneel before rabbi, even though they had great respect. You don't kneel in front of rabbi. So this man, he's already displaying an over-the-top respect for Jesus, which is okay. Clearly he had heard of Jesus before, or maybe he even heard Jesus teach. He was impressed. And he came to firmly believe, this, this guy can't answer my question. He can tell me what, what I need to know. And again, he's right. Jesus can answer his questions. He can solve his problems. It makes us wonder, though, what kind of problems does this guy have? When you have all that money, all that power, it doesn't seem like you'd have very many problems that you can't solve. But this man had a big problem. It was a spiritual problem, something money can't solve. We discover that he had such a huge unrest in his own soul concerning his salvation. And this leads to, number two, a supreme question. Number two, a supreme question. Again, looking at 
all of verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This really is the biggest question of them all. Man has been asking this question forever. How do we get to heaven? Well, what's the way in? What does it take? What do I have to do? This question is especially common among the Jews. However, the way this, this man phrases the question already tells us a little something about him. He doesn't come up to Jesus and say, how can I receive eternal life? He says, what must I do? Just tell me what to do to obtain eternal life. In Matthew's Gospel, we get the full question. He said, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And the question reveals a man's worldview. He believes eternal life is to be earned. He believes eternal life is an accomplishment. It's something I can do to achieve. And he believed Jesus knew what he had to do. That's all he was missing. And surely this rich young man thought Jesus would give him some quest, some great work to guarantee he gets in the door. And he he was going to do it. He had the ability. He had the willingness. He had the resources. He was up for the task. He just needed to know what to do. he's, He's a seeker. He's seeking, and he needs someone to point him the way. Now, even if you think he's already misguided because he's looking to obtain eternal life, still, at least he wants to know the way at least he's interested in eternal life. Today, if, if someone came up to you asking this question, we'd be excited. This is like evangelism t-ball. Someone comes up to you and like, hey, how do I get to heaven? What, what do I have to do for eternal life? That, that's great. I mean, you don't have to convince them. You don't have to argue with them about the Bible. You don't have to prove that God exists. They're seemingly already ready to believe. You just have to tell them, just hit the ball off the tee. It should be a free home run. And this is, we, we love to hear this question. So here for Jesus especially, this has got to be easy. This has got to be his easiest case. This guy's like ready. He's right at the door. He appears to have a true seeker in front of him, someone who's just ready to believe. This guy's come to the right person with his question. He's got the right desire for eternal life. So now we, we just expect Jesus to, to hit it out of the park. He's going to usher this man straight into the kingdom, right? He's going to just bring him right in the church. Easy. But instead of immediately accepting this man, Jesus first provokes him to thought and examination. And this leads to number three, a striking provocation. A striking provocation. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. When people read this, they're often puzzled. You know, what is Jesus saying here? What does he mean by this? Only God is good. Okay, we get that part. But does that mean Jesus is saying he's not good? And therefore, like, he's not God? People wonder. Well, first off, you should know, it's very abnormal for a Jew to call a rabbi good. In all of the, the writings we have from ancient Jewish sources, it's pretty much without parallel for rabbis to be called good because they, they wanted to avoid any hint of blasphemy because they knew only God was good. So it's clear this man, he's just throwing around the, the title good. And already from his background and from his opening question, you can tell his view of goodness. He says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? He believes Goodness is attainable, and it comes by doing good things. This man has a relative view of goodness. Do you know what that means? It means you define goodness by comparison to others. And most people are like this. This is how most people conceive of goodness. For example, do you consider yourself to be a good person? Almost everyone would say, yes, of course, I'm a good person. And you ask them why. Well, most people would say, because I do good things. And it's not like I'm a criminal. Compared to a criminal, they are a good person. But it's all relative. Even a thief could say he's a good person. It's like, hey, I'm not that bad. At least I'm not a murderer. See, compared to a murderer, the thief is a good person. It's all relative. And of course, when you have a relative view of goodness like this, it's pretty easy to make sure you come out on top because there's always going to be someone worse than you. So, of course, you're a good person by comparison. 
And that's what this rich young ruler believed. He was definitely better than others. He was rich. He was religious. He was the head of the synagogue. He kept the law. I mean, he was good. But Jesus read this man like a book from the beginning. This man called him good teacher. But Jesus knew. He's just throwing this title around. He doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't know what goodness is all about. And that's why Jesus says what he says. Jesus knows he's got a man who thinks he's good and who thinks he just needs to know how good do I have to be to guarantee eternal life. But Christ's response is meant to provoke him to thought and to make him think about what God's standard of goodness is all about. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Do you understand that? He wants a man to think about what he's saying, to think about what he believes, to think about his own goodness. He thinks goodness is relative, but it's not. It's absolute. Jesus is challenging this man with an absolute view of goodness. He says only God is good. Only God is absolutely good. Only God is morally perfect. And that's the real standard. Don't bother measuring yourself against other people. That's not the standard. Standard is God himself. So you measure yourself up against God and and tell me if you still feel good, like you're good in comparison to God after that. That's the point. That's what this man needs to do. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's provoking him. I like to use the analogy of jumping. Now what makes someone a good jumper? Well, obviously they, they can jump higher than everyone else. Today, as a rule of thumb, I would say if you can slam dunk a basketball, you're a good jumper. Most people can't hit that 10-foot rim. If you can, I'd call you a good jumper. But what if we used a different standard to measure being a good jumper? What if the standard was to jump clear across the Grand Canyon? Well, in that case, it doesn't matter if you're the best high jumper in the world. You're not going to make that jump. You're going to fall really far short. And you're going to pay the consequences. And all of us will. Not a single human can meet that standard. No human is a good jumper when you put it like that. When that's the standard. And that's what Jesus is doing here with God and his goodness. Here's a man who thinks he's good because compared to other people, he is. And he thinks Jesus is a good teacher because compared to other teachers, he is. But if this man only realized that the only standard of goodness is is God, it's an absolute standard, he wouldn't be so quick to think that he could be good enough to stand before this God. In comparison to God, none of us are good. God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not measuring us against others. You just have to be better than a criminal, better than a murderer. That's not the standard. God measures us against himself, his own goodness where you have to be holy as God is holy, Leviticus 19.2. You have to be perfect as God is perfect, Matthew 5.48. That, that's the standard. Only God is good in the truest sense of the word, and this provoking statement by Jesus was designed to stop this man in his tracks, to make him think about just how good he needs to be to stand before a perfectly good God. And I should also throw in here, by no means is Jesus denying his own goodness or his own deity here. It's not what he says. He's just questioning this man because he's throwing around a concept of goodness without thinking. Jesus never says, don't call me good. I'm not good. He doesn't say that. This is a thought-provoking rhetorical question. If he really understood that only God was good, this man wouldn't be calling anyone good, let alone himself. But ironically... What he said was true. He just didn't know it. Jesus is a good teacher in the truest sense of the word. He is a good shepherd. Jesus actually does meet God's standard of goodness because he is God. But that's actually not the point of the text. First things first, Jesus is provoking this man to evaluate himself by presenting him with the absolute standard of goodness, which is God. And next, we see Jesus bring in the ultimate expression of God's good standard, the law. This brings us to number four, a secret evaluation. Number four, a secret evaluation. I'll explain that in a minute, but just look at verse 19. 
Jesus continues and he says, you, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. All right, well, what Jesus says here is pretty straightforward. He's just repeating some of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. It's commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9. Honor your father and mother. It's commandment number 5. Jesus says, do not defraud. That's not the exact wording of commandment number 10, which is not to covet. But it was it's widely thought that the rich got rich by coveting and then defrauding their neighbors. So it's most likely Jesus is phrasing it like, like this because he's dealing with a very rich man. So in all, we have a summary here of, of what's called the second table of the law. Commandments 5 through 10. They all deal with how you treat other people. How you treat others. So that, that's not complicated. We get that. The real question is, why is Jesus even saying this? Why is he giving the man the law? I thought this guy was a seeker. He's ready to believe. Why doesn't Jesus give him the gospel? Why the law? Well, you have to realize the function of the law. And this is, this is so important. The purpose of the law is not to save. No one has ever been saved by the law. There's no justification by the works of the law. No Jew ever was saved because he kept the Ten Commandments. It's not the point. It's not even why they were given. We're all already violators of God's law, and we keep violating God's law. We are only condemned by the law. We're not saved by the law. We're condemned. So then why did God give us the law? Well, it's not complicated. In the law, God's own perfect righteousness is revealed, and how far we fall short is revealed. He is giving us this super high standard, the Grand Canyon standard, so we see we can't make that jump. That's the point of the law. The law for us, it's like a mirror. You gaze into it and you see yourself for who you really are, and it's not good. It's like you're walking around, you've got dirt all over your face, but you don't know it. It's not until you look into a mirror that you realize, man, I'm, I'm pretty dirty. And you can clean yourself off. And that's the same with the law. It's meant to show us our sin problem. It's designed to convict, to display just how far we fall short from God's absolute goodness. Like Paul said, just one of many verses, Romans 3.20, he said, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That, that's it. That's where you get to know sin, through the law. But it doesn't save you from that sin. So, so then why is Jesus reciting straight-up law to this man? Well, it's a secret evaluation. It's kind of sly. He's evaluating this man. Jesus is holding up the mirror of the law to this man's face with the hopes that he will finally see himself for who he really is. This rich young ruler, he thinks he's good. He thinks he, just, he can be good enough to get into heaven. But when you measure yourself up to God's standard as revealed in his law, that idea should go out the window real fast. That there's no way you can meet God's standard. There's no way you can be good like God is good. I mean, compared to God, you're not good. And the realization of that should drive you to, to seek mercy. To seek just grace. Lord, I, I can't make this jump. Can you show me mercy? That's the point of the law. But I hope you can see Christ's evangelism strategy here. This man came to him, seeker, call him what you want, but he wasn't ready. He didn't adequately see his own sin. He didn't know the bad news first. He thought he could be good enough. He thought eternal life was attainable. But Jesus holds up the mirror of the law to him because first, he must evaluate himself according to God's true standard. And we all must understand the condemnation of the law before we can delight in the glory of grace. But first things first, Jesus gives him what should be bad news. But as it turns out, this man is deep into his legalism, common to the Jews. And so we find number five, a superficial confirmation. Fifthly, a superficial confirmation. So Jesus says all this. This is why he called me good. You know the commands. How does the man respond? Verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, 
Notice he doesn't say good teacher anymore. He just says, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. When this young man heard Jesus rattle off these six commands, he thought, I've done that. He's kept these. He's thinking in his mind, I haven't murdered anyone that I know of. I haven't committed adultery, stolen, borne false witness, defrauded. I've honored my father and mother. I've done all this. I'm good. Since his youth up, age 12, considered a, a man by the Jews, he's kept all these. But the problem was that he, along with all of the Jews, they totally ignored the intent of the law, the spirit of the law, and they only paid attention to the letter of the law. You know, forget the heart motivation. They're only con- concerned with external obedience. And that, that's easy to do. They warped the law enough to make sure they always stayed within bounds, but forget the heart motivation required. They were good law keepers, and that's it. And this man had the same problem. He had a superficial understanding of the law. He was only thinking about the externals, about keeping the letter of the law. And you can pretty much make sure that you always do that. He had no regard, though, for the thoughts and intentions of his heart. In reality, he broke God's law every day, like we all do. Especially when you consider that Jesus in Matthew 5 said, hey, you know what? Anger is akin to murder in your heart. And lust is the same thing as adultery in your heart. You know, when, when you hear it like that, that's the standard. Who's without guilt? Who doesn't break the law every day? And we're all corrupt. But this man's confirmation of keeping the law, it was superficial. He didn't know. He should have known better because even after his supposed perfect obedience, he still didn't feel right. Here's a guy who thinks he's perfectly kept the law, which is common among the high Jews. They considered themselves blameless like Paul did before salvation. I'm blameless. But even after all that, he doesn't feel justified. Why is that? Something inside told him it's not enough. He kept the law, but he didn't feel right with God. And that intuition was correct. He should have listened to it more because you're not justified by keeping the law. He's grasping at the wrong thing. And that's why he came to Jesus in the first place because his soul was still unsettled. Hey, keep the law perfectly. It didn't do it for him. And so he comes to Jesus wanting more. He was ignorant of the true nature of the law. And after his best effort, he still felt dissatisfied, empty, and lost. And that's always where the law will leave you. If you're only law, that's where you will end up. Convicted, condemned, lost. Not found. You're not found in the law. There's no salvation in the law. It only condemns. So it should be apparent to you by now. This man, relatively, he's a good guy. He is quite religious, very spiritual, but when it comes to God's ultimate standard, he, he's lost. He's a seeker, call him what you will, but he's very much lost. Thankfully, though, he's still standing in front of the right person. And thankfully, Jesus has a sincere compassion. And that's number six, a sincere compassion. Verse 21, just the beginning. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. This detail is only given in Mark's gospel. Jesus peered right into this man's soul, and he wasn't fooled. He knew precisely who he was dealing with, a very lost, blind, deceived sinner. But that doesn't move Jesus to anger and to judgment, but rather to compassion. He felt a pity for this man, and a love. He felt a love for him. word for love is agape in the verb form. It's not emotional affection, just warm fuzzies. It's a high spiritual love. It's where you seek the other person's good in, without regard for their worthiness. Jesus had a sincere love for this man. He wanted what was best for this man. And this gives us the impression that at least this man was genuine. Now, obviously, he was seriously misguided because he thought he could be good enough by keeping the law, but he wasn't like the Pharisees. He wasn't a Pharisee, and he wasn't like them. They were total hypocrites. It was all a show. It was all a sham. They were just complete hypocrites. The religion was, was, was nothing. 
But this man, he seems to be genuinely oblivious to his sin. It's like he really doesn't know better. He has genuinely bought into the teaching that you have to keep the law to obtain eternal life. He's a, he's a product of the legalistic system of the Jews. Jesus, he had the harshest words of judgment and condemnation for the Pharisees, for the self-righteous hypocrites who thought they would make their way to heaven. But in reality, there were whitewashed tombs. But Jesus, Jesus never expresses love for those people. But that's how we know this man was different. He wasn't like that. He was a clueless seeker, yeah. He was very much lost, yeah. He's unable to see his real problem. But like a, like a child who just has lost his way, this evokes a sympathy, a compassion, a love from Jesus. He, he doesn't know better. Jesus doesn't sneer at his claim to have kept the law. And this, this guy wasn't lying in his mind when he said this. In his mind, he really believed he had fulfilled the law's demands. He believed that. But he was still blinded to the depravity that lived in his heart. So, in love, Jesus, he's going to do next what love demands. He's not going to tell this guy what he wants to hear. He's going to tell him what he needs to hear. This guy is still standing in front of the right person. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the answer to his questions. But this man is still deluded. He will never find the entrance to the kingdom until he comes to terms with his own sinfulness and lack of goodness. He will never see his real need for Jesus until he grasps, grasps the peril of his sin. So Jesus is about to strike at his very heart. We wondered earlier how Jesus would react to a seeker, a real seeker. And we find Jesus has a, a compassionate love for them. They're lost, they're blind, they're deceived, they're clueless. But at the same time, Jesus won't lower the bar of discipleship for anyone. And so we find number seven, a staggering invitation. Number seven, a staggering invitation. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all, your, all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Rich young ruler thought he was good. He believed he could earn his way into heaven. He just needed to know how. What was the secret? What more did he need to do? In Matthew's account, we find him saying, what do I lack? Here was a rich man who had everything, but he still lacked. So what was it? And Jesus obliged him. He told him what he lacked. There's one thing he lacked. Jesus, though, gives him four commands. Go, sell, give, follow. Should be obvious, the first three are preparatory, leading up to the last, the command to follow. That's the key. That's what he lacked. He lacked Jesus, the gospel. That's the way into the kingdom. You must go through the door of Jesus. You must follow him. You must be his disciple. But you can't take hold of Jesus until you let go of everything else. You can't follow Jesus until you stop following your sin and whatever else you were living for. That's why Jesus first tells him, go, sell, give. The young man must first forsake what he was living for before he can come to live for Christ. And that's what he lacked. Jesus is like a master surgeon here. He knows just where to make a cut to lay this guy completely bare and open. And in one little sentence, Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue for this man. Outwardly, he did keep all the commandments. Sure. But on the inside, in his heart, there was still another God who he valued more than any. And for this guy, it was wealth. This man thought he was good. He thought he kept the commandments. But, but did he really keep all the commandments? Remember earlier, Jesus quoted for him from the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10, which deal with how you treat other people. But what about the first table 
of the law. Those first four commandments, which deal with how you treat God. What about good old number one? You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. But you see, that's precisely what this man had done. Jesus knew the measure of this man. He read his heart. He knew, and it wasn't hard to see, that for this rich young ruler, there was another God in his life from within, in his heart, whom he served above all else, and it was money. He worshipped this God. He served this God. He loved this God. He lived for this God. This is nothing other than heart idolatry. And so it looks like this man isn't so sinless after all. looks like he hasn't perfectly kept the commandments after all. looks like he's not that good after all. He's a violator of the law. looks like he needs a Savior. And that's why Jesus tells him this. There's good news here. It's bound up in the little phrase, follow me, all its unstated implications here. But this man lacked one thing, and that one thing was Jesus and what he would provide. It's not that he's going to earn eternal life by giving away his possessions and selling them, giving to the poor. That's not the point. He would receive eternal life by following Jesus as a gift, but his possessions were standing in the way. And he must bulldoze them out of there before he can go to Jesus for life. This man first had to come to terms with the sin and idolatry in his life, as we all do. He first had to forsake his sin, deny whatever he was living for, as we all do. Jesus is the way to eternal life, but to follow him, what must you do? We already read it. Jesus said, you want to follow me, you have to first deny self. And for this rich man, that that was love for money. That included love for money. And Jesus even gave him a special application, unique to this man. He had a special application Only empty hands can receive gifts. So this man, if he was to receive Christ, he was so clinging to his wealth, Jesus said, you have to let it all go. Get rid of it. Go, sell it all. And don't keep the money. Give it to the poor. They they have real needs. A love for money had clenched his heart with an icy grip, and he needed to peel the fingers back, cut it off, cast it away from him. It wouldn't be a total loss, Jesus promised him some divine compensation. He's like, look, you'll have reward in heaven. I'm not going to lose it all. But he would gain everything. He would get treasure in heaven. The great void in his life would be filled. Jesus would enter in. He would receive eternal life. He would find true fulfillment. But first, you have to forsake yourself. You have to die to your sin. And as you can see, Jesus is not lowering the bar here. The standard of discipleship remains the same. He's not interested in a cheap convert. If Jesus gave this guy a prayer to pray, he would have prayed it. If he gave him a card to sign, he would have signed it. If he said, walk down this aisle, he would have walked. But Jesus does not stop short of full self-denial, where you're not living for yourself anymore. You're living for your Lord, your Master, Jesus Jesus is only interested in true disciples. And for this rich man, God did not sit on the throne of his heart. Money did, and that had to change. This idol must be dethroned, replaced with the Lord Jesus. This is the only way to eternal life for all people. And whatever keeps you from total submission to God, be it your hand, your foot, your eye, your money, you have to cut it off, cast it away from you, and offer up your entire life to Jesus. What he chooses to give back It's up to him, but you give him your all. So we're left wondering, in the end, after Jesus gives this this hard call, what's he going to do? This move required a lot of trust. I mean, what Jesus told him was staggering. It's a staggering invitation. Give up everything, all of his stuff. He had so much money and give it all away. that's, That's hard to do. It really tests you. Is Jesus worth that? And can he be trusted? I mean, I'm going to get treasure in heaven, but I can't see that. So can I really take you at your word? It it takes a lot of confidence in Jesus to believe what he's saying. We'd even call it maybe faith. But this is the ultimate test, especially for a guy like this. So we wonder, what's he going to do? 
How's he going to receive this invitation? And sadly, we find, lastly, number eight, a sad rejection. A sad rejection. And finishing it off in verse 22. But at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And that's it. Here's a man who thought he was righteous, thought he kept the law, had done everything right, yet love for money was his secret heart sin. It was his Achilles heel. But with this, this little demand, Jesus sent that one arrow right for his favorite idol. That was, that was a good thing, though. That was a blessing in disguise. This invitation Jesus gave could have freed him from his slavery to sin. It could have finally gave him the soul satisfaction he was looking for. But tragically, this man was not ready to give up his idol. Verse 22 said he was saddened. That word is used of a day like this. Dark thunderclouds forming. He became depressed. Like a personal rain cloud appeared over him when Jesus told him that those words. He, he, he was depressed. But that's not what makes this ending so sad. What makes it so sad is that after hearing that, he turned around and walked away. What, what amazes me is that this rich young ruler, he doesn't argue. He doesn't look for a loophole. He doesn't try and compromise. He doesn't say, like, can we, can we talk about this? He hears it. He gets sad. He walks away. That's sad. That means he understands the demand that Jesus places on him. He understands what it takes to obtain eternal life for him. But he's not prepared to pay that cost. He's not ready to deny self. He loves himself and his money and everything it gives. He doesn't want to live for the Lord. Jesus said earlier, whoever wishes to save his life, you're going to lose it. And this rich young ruler is exhibit A. In the end, he was more concerned about this life than eternal life. He valued earthly treasure more than heavenly treasure. And so he walked away. You know what also amazes me though? When he walked away, what did Jesus do? Nothing. Jesus didn't run after him. Didn't try and catch him. Didn't try and convince him. Didn't soften his approach. Didn't lessen his demands. Didn't lower the bar. Let him go. And I'm sure the disciples, as they watched the scene unfold and they watched this man walk away, their jaws dropped to the floor and they were shocked. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? We need this guy. He's rich. He could finance our whole operation. He's a ruler. He has influence over all these people. He's young. He has years of service ahead of him. Like, get him back. What are you doing? How are you letting him go? But this man's hands were too full to receive the gift of salvation. And that's, that's the irony of the kingdom of God. Salvation, it's not something you earn by merit. It's a gift that is to be received for free. In fact, you must receive it like a child, helpless and dependent on God, seeking his mercy and grace through faith in Jesus. And you remember our text from last week, right before? It's about the children. Who receives the kingdom? Children, those like children. And it's no coincidence that right after that, in all of our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke at least, we find this account of the rich young ruler as if to display the exact opposite of what it means to receive the kingdom like a child. That's why this text is here. This is the exact opposite of receiving the kingdom like a child. Here's a man who possessed everything. Hey, kids, they come in the world, they possess nothing. He possessed everything, but he still lacked. And if only he became like a child, helpless and dependent, he would receive the one thing he needed. But he doesn't. And it's a tragedy. This is a tragic account. Still, it was orchestrated by God for us today to learn several lessons. And I want to spend just a few final minutes reflecting on and what we learn here. First, just, just think of yourself. What do you think of yourself? Have you accepted the bad news that comes before the good news? Have you come to terms with the fact that before God, you're not good? That you're not a good person? Do you realize that? And look at his law. Do you measure up perfectly? Are you without sin? No. 
Remember, God doesn't grade on a curve. It doesn't matter if you're better than criminals or better than everyone else. And compared to God's standard, we all fall short. We are condemned by his law. He's holy. We're not. And so first, unlike the rich young ruler, you must realize that, accept that, and be humbled by that. It should be clear that no amount of your personal effort will ever make you good enough to stand before a perfectly good God. We fall short. You have to accept the bad news. We're condemned. Secondly, though, consider what stands in your way. You know, the good news of the gospel is that even though we're not good enough, that we have sinned, that we do fall short, that we're condemned by the law, even though we can still be saved by God's grace just as a free gift. That's, that's some real good news. When you understand how bad it is, how good that is, that, that's good. You can receive eternal life for free as a gift just by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus, living for him. And that's good news. But is something keeping you from turning to him? Are you perhaps too busy serving another god? For this man, his god was his money. He took his idolatry to his grave. This idolatry can take many forms. Things that are otherwise good can easily capture our hearts where you live for them. Things like success, career, fame, prestige, health, family, relationships, pleasure, entertainment, vacations. The list goes on. These are all things that people live for. Things that capture your heart. They sit on the throne of your heart. But learn from this account. You can't lay hold of Christ until first you let go of whatever you're living for. That doesn't mean you, you, these things are bad, we don't take a vacation, but I offer it up to the Lord. My life is His. And if it means getting rid of this or that, so be it. Ultimately, though, you're, you're giving up yourself. You let go of self. And we'll repeat it again. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must deny self. If you want to save your life, He said, you have to lose it. Meaning you give it up to Him. You live for him now, not your own will, not your own desires, not your own glory, but his. This sounds like a lot, and it is. Putting someone else on the throne of your heart, that, that's a lot. But Jesus doesn't lower the bar of discipleship for anyone. And if you haven't truly given yourself over to him, if you're still really secretly living for the idols of your heart, then it's time to examine yourself and, Lord willing, change. You must tear down the idols of your heart, forsake your sins, and go to Jesus. You give him your life. You believe in him by faith. You follow him. This rich man and us really need to learn a lesson in divine accounting. Before God, none of us are rich spiritually. We're not good people. We're in debt. We have a sin debt. And our accounts are empty. We're bankrupt. We can't hope to pay back God the goodness we owe him. We're not good enough to get in. Only Jesus is. He's our hope. Why? What did Jesus do? Well, it's been said in Scripture many ways. How about this one? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And Jesus gave his life on the cross to pay our eternal sin debt. And it's only through him that our debt, our bankruptcy can be wiped clean. And through him we can be given the perfect righteousness that the law demands. That, that's our only answer. That's our only hope that we're found in him. Sadly though, at least according to my experience, most people are like this rich man. If you ask people, hey, why, should, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Why should you go to heaven? At least according to my experience, what do most people say? Well, because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I, even so-called Christians in the church have given me this answer. But let this tragic story of the rich young ruler serve as the death blow to that response. There's no such thing as being good enough to get into heaven. Rather, Jesus is good enough. And it's only by faith that we receive him. So run to him. Although you may not be rich or young or a ruler in this life, 
Jesus will grant you eternal riches, eternal life, and even an eternal rule with him in the next. So we thank God for the gift he's prepared for those who are ready to receive it like a child. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, how thankful we are for, for passages like this that even confront us Lord, we are not without sin, though some can still be deceived thinking they are they meet your standard. We, we fall short. Jesus himself set the bar at perfection. We are to be perfect as you are perfect. Lord, we're not. We confess. We sin. We have violated. We fall short. Apart from you, we would be lost, condemned, forsaken forever, and we would deserve it. We, we are a sinful people. But this bad news makes the, the good news all the more glorious, and we really exalt in it now, Lord. You sent your Son, Lord Jesus, to die on the cross to pay for our sins, rising from the dead, purchasing our eternal life. And we can receive it just for free. We don't have to bear the burden of the law, thinking we have to earn our way in, doing this, doing that. It's not about doing. It's about knowing you, first and foremost, and your Son. We thank you, Jesus, for the price you paid for us. Convict us of our sin, and may we always run to you. We offer up our lives as living sacrifices, we seek to live for you. And whatever we have, even those who are rich or poor or healthy or not, whatever, we just want to give you our lives and whatever that looks like. And that's what true discipleship involves. And you don't lower the bar. We don't want to lower the bar. It's your church. Help us be faithful in ministering your gospel. And as we depart from here, may we rejoice in what the Savior has done for us. Any who have not received him, any who are still clinging to their own goodness, I pray you convict them through your word that they must let go, that they must receive like a child, understanding we, we fall too far short. But thanks be to God for sending your son Christ for us. And we thank you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.